This morning we're finishing Luke chapter 4. We'll be covering verse 31 to 44. Luke 4 verse 31 to 44. And the theme I've chosen for this passage. Words of life and power. Let's go to the Lord in prayer first. Lord, where will words of life and power come from except from you, the living God, who has spoken and it came into being, who spoke and all things existed? We bow before you, the Almighty, and I'm deeply aware this morning, Lord, that I am a jar of clay, and that we are as nothing before you, and that it is only you who could make something of the dust of the earth. You who speak in the things that do not exist, you speak them as if they exist. You created the things that we see from things that are not visible. We worship you, the Almighty, the Most High, the Holy One, the Sovereign Lord of Glory. Speak to our hearts as we hear Luke chapter 4 this morning. And would you help us to listen. Give us an open ear and help us to obey. Amen. There are some preachers who make the error, they make the mistake of thinking that they can do everything Jesus did when he was on earth. And then to prove their point, they'll, they'll point you to John 14, verse 12, where Jesus himself said that you believe in me, you will do the works that I do, and even greater works than these you will do. But they don't even finish quoting the verse because it continues and says, you'll do greater things than I do because I'm going to the Father, implying when I go to the Father, I will pour out the Holy Spirit upon you. And just two verses later, or three verses later, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. And verse 17, even the Spirit of Truth. So, this is about the Holy Spirit that will come, and when the Spirit comes, they will do these greater works. And then, in the context of that verse in John 14, just after He says they will do greater works, He explains how it will happen. Because verse 13 and 14 says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. So it's talking about answers to prayer. And we see this, for instance, in Acts 1. Because just to say we'll do greater miracles than Jesus did, well, two things we need to clear out of the way. Number one, where, where has there ever been someone who's done more spectacular miracles than Jesus? Where was there ever someone who calmed a storm with a single word, in a flash, in an instant, in a moment? Where was there ever a believer who fed a crowd of 5,000 families from a boy's lunch tin? So don't say we do more spectacular miracles than Jesus did, or more in number, because John 21 verse 25 says, if all the things Jesus did had to be written down, there wouldn't be enough books in the world. So it can't mean more spectacular or more in number. What it does mean, take Acts for instance. Acts 1, 
We read in verse 14 how the believers, the early church, they persevered in prayer. And then you see in Acts 1 verse 15, there were only about 120 believers in Jerusalem. There were some in Galilee also, a couple of hundred, but only about 120 after Jesus had ascended to heaven. And then when the Holy Spirit is poured out in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people are converted in a single day under Peter's preaching. So that's what Jesus meant. I go to the Father and he's going to pour out the Spirit and the Spirit empowers Peter's preaching and the Spirit works among people. He falls upon them and 3,000 are converted. Now, the reason I'm saying these things is because there are many Christians, they want to take this morning's theme, words of life and power, and they want to apply it to themselves in a wrong way. So they think their words are full of life and power. But the Bible says, they think they can, just, they can just speak life. But the Bible tells us God alone has the ability to speak life, to speak things into existence. Genesis 1, and God said, and God said. And you see all these things being created. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. God created all these things by His word. He speaks to the things that don't exist as if they do. And, and suddenly they're there. Romans 4.17 and so that's what Luke 4 is about. An illustration of this God. His words are life and power. So number one, Jesus' teaching. Verse 31 and 32. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. And then verse 42 to the end. And when it was day, Jesus departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The very first time I heard John MacArthur preach, I thought of this guy when I started more and more listening to his sermons. I thought, this guy preaches with authority. And I thought the same when I started listening to, listening to Martin Lloyd-Jones. This man preaches with authority. Why is this? Why is this? It's because these preachers, they expound the scriptures. They explain the Bible verse by verse. Word for word they explain as they go through passages of scripture. So in other words, they're not preaching their own ideas. They're preaching the Word of God. And in a sense, they, were, they, they preached like Jesus. Because Jesus too preached the Word, as we learn from Mark 2 verse 2. So Jesus' sermons weren't boring. It weren't, wasn't these, these dry academic dissertations like the, the scribes of the Pharisees in Mark 1 verse 22, the people said, Jesus doesn't preach, preach like the scribes. You know, the scribes had all these traditions and they're preaching the traditions of the fathers. And they're quoting, Rabbi so-and-so said. And then they've got these long quotes and long paragraphs they quote. Like the Apostle Paul even held tenaciously to the traditions of his fathers. Galatians 1 verse 14. But when he was converted, Paul himself says, don't be caught by human tradition. Things that aren't according to Christ and His Word. So Jesus preached the Old Testament. 
as we saw last week, verse 25 to 27, quoting and telling us about Elijah and Elisha and their, their miracles and their works and what God did through them. Uh, but then he also brought the new revelation of the New Testament. Uh, verse 31, he went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee of Galilee. So Capernaum's the city on this coast of the Lake of Galilee or the Sea of Galilee. He was teaching them on the Sabbath and they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. So Jesus' authority lies in himself because Christ is the word of God. John 1 verse 1. He's the living word. He is the eternal word. He is the expression of the Father. He is the revelation of God the Father. So when Jesus preaches, he does not merely say, Thus says the Lord, like the Old Testament prophets. Jesus says, verse 24, last week's text, Truly I say to you, not just the Lord says, I say, why? Because Jesus is Lord. He's the Lord of the prophets. And that is why his words come with such authority, with such power, verse 32. People are astonished at his teaching. Even as we saw last week in verse 15, people glory and marvel at his teaching. Verse 22, they marveled at the gracious words coming out of his mouth. Um, Matthew 7, 28 and 29, they were astonished about the teaching of Jesus, saying what authority, what power this man has in his teaching. It's not like the scribes. And so you can understand in verse 42, where they, it says they would have kept him from leaving them. They want to keep him. For themselves, they, they, they marvel, um, yes, at his teaching, but also at his miracles. And Peter's so excited, Mark tells us in Mark chapter 1, verse 36 and 37, Peter's so excited that all the crowds, they're looking for Jesus. And Peter goes, Jesus, they're looking for you. It's like you're saying, Jesus, you're famous. You're a celebrity now. People want to hear you preach. People want to see the miracles you do. But Jesus is not interested in the praises of men. In the wrong sense, Jesus is not interested in becoming a superstar. <clears throat> Jesus wants to complete the assignment, the task given to him by his Father. And so he doesn't cave into the pressure, he doesn't give in to the temptation to be the personal Messiah of this little group of people in verse 42. We want to keep Jesus for ourselves, no? No, in verse 43 and 44, Jesus says, I'm not only, basically, I'm not only meant for you. I must go to all the towns. I must go everywhere and preach the kingdom of God. And so he starts, verse 44, going throughout all Judea. He wants to preach the message of the kingdom. He says that in verse 43. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Uh, this is why I was sent for this purpose. Like he's saying, this is why my father sent me from heaven. That I must go everywhere and tell them, the kingdom has come, the kingdom has come. And you must acknowledge me as your king. So if they want to be born again, Luke 16, 16, they must strive to enter the kingdom. They must be born again. Because without being born again, you will never enter the kingdom. You cannot see God's kingdom. You won't have spiritual eyes to see spiritual things. John 3 verse 3 and verse 5. 
And so if they do believe, if they are born again, if they do strive to enter the kingdom, then his kingdom will be planted in their hearts. He will rule their hearts. He will rule in their lives as king. He will bring them from the kingdom of darkness or the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. They will be children of light. The kingdom is in them. Luke 17 verse 20 and 21. And then he'll give them the fullness of that kingdom when he returns. When Jesus comes again, he will say, enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Matthew 25 verse 34. Now the way Jesus brings this kingdom to us is he brings this through the preaching through the preaching, he reveals the kingdom. He tells people of the kingdom. Verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom. Verse 44, he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And so preaching, preaching to us, the preaching of the gospel, it's not just a, a peripheral issue. It's not just something on the, on the sideline for our congregation. No, it is central to this church. It is central to the Christian faith. To preach Christ and Him crucified. And we dare not replace the preaching of the gospel. Don't replace it with music or with drama or entertaining people or having youth services or just have an interview. Let's just relax. Let's just talk to this preacher today or have a Q&A or, or motivational speeches or apologetics or having debates with atheists or let's just discuss today. Let's just talk a little bit. No, we are ambassadors of the King and we stand up and we tell people we're not interested in how you feel about the gospel. Or what's your opinion about the gospel? We declare the gospel. We stand up as the messengers of the king. And we tell you this is what the king has said. And if you repent and believe in him, he will forgive you. But if you don't, he will crush you. So please decide what you will do with this king. Because if you decide to follow this king, you resolve to walk in the steps of Christ, he demands everything of you. Your life is no longer your own. You come under the rule and the authority of this great king. Are you willing to bow? Are you willing to follow? Because if you do follow, it's all or nothing. He demands all. And so let us pray for this as a congregation. Let us pray for this. And let us share the gospel with others. Let us tell them the good news of the gospel. And this is the way in which we speak life, if you want to use that phrase. What the charismatics say about speaking life is nonsense. The way we truly speak life is by speaking the gospel to unbelievers. These are the words of life, the words of Christ. Rather than, than meddling in all of this nonsense of people saying, oh, you should speak life over your marriage and over your finances and your kids and your health and your possessions and your, your broken washing machine, just speak life over it. Listen to say that kind of thing, that has nothing to do with words of life and power. 
That kind of idea, it comes from a thing called new, to, new Thought met Metaphysics in the 1700s. That's just another form of New Age. Satan doesn't, you, you don't frighten the devil. He's not afraid when you say, oh, I've spoken death over Satan. I've spoken words over Satan. He's not afraid of that. But he does tremble if the risen Christ, through his spirit, by his spirit, works in people when the word of God, the Bible, the scriptures are being proclaimed. Because Satan knows it's not only the preacher speaking. It's the word of the living God. And that is for this very reason that the devil will do everything in his power to try and prevent you, to try and stop you from hearing God's word. Yes, you'll sit listening to the sermon and he wants you to daydream or maybe fall asleep or he will... Try and lure you and draw you with other things rather than going to a worship service where you hear the word. There are many other things to do on a Sunday. Or worry or anxiety or maybe even false teaching. He'll bring false teaching to you through DVDs and CDs or the radio or television or in the Christian bookshop or even churches. They are false teachers. Or social media or the cults. You see, Satan doesn't want people to hear the truth to be saved. He blinds them, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. So I want to warn you this morning. I want to warn you, stay away from false teaching. Don't play with false teaching. You must see red lights flashing when someone calls himself, I am apostle so-and-so, I am prophet so-and-so, and they wear blingy clothes all blingy stuff and they live in luxury and they advertise themselves and you go onto their website and it's just photos of them, photos of them everywhere, pictures of them everywhere on their website and, and they talk about money a lot and all their sermons are about how you can be more successful, how you can be a better you, how you can do this and you can do that, and everything is about being successful in this life. In other words, their sermons are man-centered. It's not preaching that helps you to know God better and understand the gospel better and understand the Bible better. So actually, they're just, they just making as if they have words that they speak that are Full of life and power. But it's not full of life and power. It just feeds people's egos. It feeds their greed. If you really want to hear words of life and power, then listen to people who explain the Bible to you, the Scriptures to you. Men like Martin Lloyd-Jones and John MacArthur and John Piper and R.C. Sproul and Steve Lawson. You can get all their sermons for free on the internet. Or Martin Holt. But then of course, true teaching of the Bible and pure teaching of the scriptures, that's not enough. Because you can preach the best sermon, but without the power of the Holy Spirit, no one will change. And so that is why verse 42 tells us, Jesus departed and went into a desert desolate place. What did he do? Chapter 5 verse 16. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. That is why Jesus withdrew from crowds so often to spend time in prayer. 
And you find this all throughout Luke. Chapter 6, verse 12, he prayed through a whole night going up the mountain. Chapter 9, verse 18, he prayed. 9, 29, up on the mountain, he prayed. 11, verse 1, Jesus was praying. Uh, Luke 22, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was praying. The parallel passage for this verse, verse 42, is in Mark 1, verse 35. Early in the morning, Jesus departed. He went to a, a desolate place, a lonely place, where he could pray. And again, prayer then cannot be a side issue. It's not as if we can leave prayer and put it aside and leave it out. If prayer was necessary in the ministry of Jesus, then we need to pray. How will unbelievers be saved? How will Christians grow if the word is not preached in the power of the Spirit? If we preach the word in own power... But if the Holy Spirit works, what will happen when the word is preached? Well, then God will give people light and direction and wisdom and insight and knowledge. He will transform them. He will, he will make them bear the fruit of repentance. His word is like a hammer. His word is like a hammer that breaks hard rock, rock hard hearts. His word is like a fire that consumes. It burns away the impurities. He sanctifies us through his word. Faith comes by hearing, and what we hear is the, are the words of Christ. He washes us with the water of the Word. The Word is the sword of the Spirit. It cuts, it wounds, it shows us the motives of the heart. It helps us withstand temptation. It shows us ourself. It's a mirror that shows you the filth and the sin in your own heart. So you can find mercy in the blood of Christ and forgiveness. It equips us for every good work. It helps us to mature, to live in the way of righteousness. It's like seed. It makes us grow. It brings new life. It's like milk for babies. So let us continue to pray for the preaching. Let us continue to pray for evangelism, for our outreach at mess, for missions work, for revival. Let us pray for these things in our prayer meetings and on our own. You know, Jesus didn't sit back when he received the Spirit. Jesus was, he received the Holy Spirit in Luke 3, verse 21 and 22. When he was baptized, the Spirit came upon him like a dove. Chapter 4, verse 1, he was full of the Spirit. 4, verse 14, he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. 4, verse 18, he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. But Jesus didn't sit back and be passive and say, oh, I've got the Spirit now. No, he prayed often. He prayed often for new power, for strength, for the power in his ministry. That's why verse 42 says, he departed, he went into a desolate place. Chapter 5, verse 16, he would, he would, would, would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And so we as a church, we can't, we can't rest and sit back because the Lord blessed us, blessed us in 2019 and He blessed us in 2020. We can't sit back and just feed on the spiritual blessings of two years ago or of one year ago. We must ask the Lord for new strength, new grace, fresh, a fresh outpouring of His Spirit in our congregation and in our lives. We should pray for this often. His mercies are new every morning. How much more will the Father not give the Holy Spirit to those 
who ask him. You just check the saints. You just read of the believers in Jerusalem. In Acts 2, they were baptized with the Spirit. But in Acts 4, verse 31, they are filled with the Spirit again. A continual filling with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. That's what we need. Number two, Jesus works. So that was Jesus' words, his teaching, and now his works. Verse 33 to 41. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve him. Now, the sun was setting. When the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and wouldn't allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So it was just, a, just about a week ago that I heard on radio pulpit some preacher saying and encouraging people just to speak life. Just speak life over your finances and, and receive it. Receive the blessing. It'll come. Receive your miracles. and You know, that kind of talk. But I cannot understand how in the world, how can people not see... You cannot replace yourself with Jesus in John 1 verse 1. John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It doesn't say the Word was Mary or Susan or Peter or Jack. He was in the beginning with God, and then it speaks of Jesus, who is the Word, He created all things, and nothing that exists was created without Him. How in the world do people think they are the ones? They are the word. They just speak and then things exist. Jesus alone is the word. And Jesus alone, when he speaks, there is life. Now Jesus' words, when you read his sermons, or just read what he did, Jesus' words, they're not just this dead sermon and this lifeless sermon. What Jesus speaks actually happens. And so when Jesus spoke in verse 33 to 41, the verses I just read, things happened. Things happened. Demons fled and sick people got healthy again. Now this is how it happened. So Jesus is in the Jewish synagogue, verse 33. A synagogue is just the Jewish place of worship, a building. So Jesus is in the synagogue 
And he was busy preaching. And there's, there's a man. There sits a man. He, he has the unclean spirit of a demon. Verse 33. Now maybe he came into the synagogue because he wants to disrupt the service and disrupt Jesus' teaching. <coughs> but he's filled with fear. He's filled with fear. He cannot disrupt it really because verse 33, you see this demon crying out. He's crying out in fear. Verse 34, oh, what have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? They know who Jesus is. The demons tremble because they're so afraid of Jesus. James 2 verse 19. You know who Jesus is. How does he know? Well, remember, he knew Jesus before Jesus even became man. That demon, before that demon even became a demon, because they were angels at first, and they rebelled against God, and they were cast out of heaven. So before he even became a demon, he knew Jesus. He knew, verse 34, I know you are, you're the Holy One of God. He knew Jesus is the Holy One. He's the unique, one of a kind, Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God, verse 41. He's the Messiah, the Christ, verse 41. And so he's really afraid of Jesus, verse 34. Have you come to destroy us? Matthew 8, verse 29. Have you come to cast us into hell? So they're afraid. They think now is the time that Jesus is going to destroy them and punish them in hell. Maybe you like that. You're just like this demon. You know exactly who Jesus is. And you're even afraid of Jesus. You're even afraid Jesus will punish you. So clearly it's not enough to just think those things and know those things because even the demons knew that. Even the demons were afraid and they knew who Jesus was. In order to be saved, that is not enough. You must cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. You must cast yourself on the grace of God. You must pray that He would save you. You must believe in Him as your Savior. You must devote your life to Him. You must acknowledge Him as the one who has authority over all things. He also has authority over demons. So in verse 35, we see how Jesus with a word rebukes the demon and he tells him, be quiet, come out of the man. And then the demon immediately has to leave. In verse 35, it says he throws this man down in their midst. The man falls on the ground and Mark tells us in 1 verse 26, the man started convul uh, having these convulsions, shaking, uh, but the demon couldn't harm the man, verse 35. So that just shows to me that what happens in charismatic churches when you find these people falling over and starting to come, have, having convulsions and they start shaking, they call it slain in the spirit. They say it's the Holy Spirit who does that. It's not the Holy Spirit who does that in those churches. It's the devil who does that. Because many of those people fall over and they get hurt. And they're there to be healed by these so-called faith healers, but they get hurt. And you see, in this verse, verse 35, the demon threw the man down. He wanted to do him harm, but he couldn't. So if those people are, are harmed, don't tell me it's the Holy Spirit, because he won't harm people in that way. If it's really him trying to save them and help them. It's the devil who harms them. Where it's truly the Lord Jesus who is working, people are 
they're not only surprised and amazed about how someone is healed, maybe. No, they're amazed about Jesus. Not about only what he does, but, but who he is. Verse 36, they were all amazed. What is this word? What is this authority and this power? Look at Christ. So if it's really the Lord Jesus who is working and people see that, people don't start acting as if they have power to speak life or this prophet, he has power to speak life. No, they are amazed at the power of Christ, at the power of his word. And how Jesus, he doesn't bargain with the devil. Jesus commands the devil. Verse 36, he commanded him, come out. And where God speaks through a pastor, where God works in a congregation in answer to their prayers, where God speaks through the preaching of his word, oh, there the news of Jesus of Nazareth, of Jesus Christ, it will spread like wildfire. Verse 37. And the reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So people will be aware of something more than just the preacher. They will know God is a greater reality than everything and anything I've ever experienced with my five senses. And they will say, they will fall on their faces in worship before God. And they will tremble when their thoughts are even made known as the word is preached and God strikes their hearts. And they will say truly, God is in this place. And they will know that God is not just the great God far away in heaven, but God is also the one who is interested in their lives personally. Not just in the large group, oh, you here, I see your face. No, but personally. He's in their houses, he's in their homes. Verse 38, he arose, he left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. So Jesus goes into this house with uh, James and John, according to Mark 1, verse 29. And this is the house of Peter and Andrew. We read in Mark 1. And there we see Peter's mother-in-law. Peter was married. We learn from 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5. So here's his mother-in-law, verse 38. And she's got a high fever. Now, a high fever... You can get convulsions from that. And if it's very high, you can even get brain damage. And in extreme cases, people can even die from a very high fever. So this is dangerous. She's lying there with a high fever. And the disciples immediately, they consult Jesus and they ask Jesus about it. They appeal to Jesus on her behalf, verse 39 or verse 38. And it's like they, they're appealing on her behalf because she can't ask for herself because she's too sick. And in the same way, we can, we can pray for one another. We can go to Jesus on behalf of one another in prayer, saying, Lord, please help Niels. He's very ill. Please help Tani Betts. Please help Chantel. Please help Mariki. Please help Umyapi or whoever in their crises, in their illness. Uh, we can do this individually. We can do this in our prayer meetings and pray for one another. And we pray knowing that he will answer. He will answer just like in verse 39. He stood over her, meaning she's lying flat on her back. She's so ill, lying in bed. He's standing over her and then he rebukes the fever and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, when it says he rebuked the fever, just go back to verse 35. 
It says he rebuked the demon. Verse 41, he rebuked the demons. So the word rebuke here implies that maybe it was a demon in this case. It was a demon who caused the fever. Demons, uh, Satan and demons can cause illness. Luke 13 verse 11, Job 2 verse 7. So that's possible. And then he heals her immediately. She gets up and, and she starts serving them. That implies the healing was instantaneous and the, heal, the healing was complete. And then when sundown comes, the sun sets, verse 40, meaning the Sabbath is over because the Jews work from sundown to sundown, not like us from sunset to sunset. <coughs> so the Sabbath is over, and so they bring all the sick people in their town. The whole town is there, Mark tells us in chapter 133. So they bring, bring all the sick people, they bring the demon-possessed so that they can be healed, and then Jesus, verse 40, lays his hands on everyone, and he heals them. And then also the demons, they cast out with, with a word. Verse 41. A single word Jesus speaks, Matthew 8 verse 16. Just says a word and they're healed. And he rebukes these demons and he tells them, quiet! They're not allowed to tell people who Jesus is. Why not? Um, the reason is, Jesus doesn't want people to think when the demons start saying, Jesus is the Messiah. Oh, Jesus and the demons are working together to spread the gospel. No, no. Jesus is not working with the demons. And he wants people to understand that clearly. Because otherwise they will accuse him saying, Ah, yes, Jesus works with Satan. Like they did in Mark 3 verse 22. Alright, so what are the lessons we're going to take from this? From these verses. The first lesson is, Yes, demons can cause sickness. But, all sickness is not caused by demons. You cannot say every person who is sick, oh, he must be demon-possessed or there's a demon in him. That's not true. Matthew 4 verse 24 clearly distinguishes between illness and demon possession. Mark 1 the same and even these verses, verse 40 and 41. Verse 40, he heals sick people. And then verse 41, demons also came out of many. So some of them are sick because of demons, but many of them aren't sick because of demons. Sometimes, the Bible tells us, sometimes it's even God who makes people sick. Like in Exodus 4 verse 11, the Lord says, I make people blind, I make them to see, I make them deaf, I make them to hear, I make them mute. Or in the ten plagues, God sent this, the pestilence upon the Egyptians. Or in, in the final plague, God killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. Or in Exodus 15, 26, God says, I put those diseases upon the Egyptians. Numbers chapter 12, verse 10, God made Miriam to be a leper when she spoke against Moses. Or in Numbers chapter 16, God sent the plague among the Israelites. Or Numbers 25, God sent another plague. Deuteronomy 28, verse 59 and 61, God says, I will strike you with boils. I will strike you with all kinds of illnesses if you turn away from me and worship other gods. I wound, I make, I heal. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, God sent tumors upon the Philistines in 1 Samuel 5. He struck them with tumors. And many of them died. God afflicted the child so that he died. Eventually he became sick and eventually died. 2 Samuel 12 verse 15. God struck the Israelites with pestilence and 70,000 died. 2 Samuel 24 verse 15. God made the Corinthians to become ill when they played around with the Lord's Supper with communion and they were playing games with it. God sent the plagues in Revelation 16 verse 1 and 2 and people got all these boils on them, these sores. 
So God does it. And God even sometimes allows believers to become seriously ill and sometimes even die of that illness. Like in 2 Kings 13, verse 14 and 20, that is Elisha. Elisha gets ill and he dies of that sickness. Or a thorn in the flesh was given to Paul, and that is Satan that is allowed to give him the thorn in the flesh. And there are many theories about what it may be. But God allowed that. And Paul even prayed, take it away. And the Lord said, no, I'm going to give you grace to, to handle this. Or in, in Philippians 2, the end, Epaphroditus became so ill he nearly died. 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul says to Timothy, you've got these constant stomach problems. Take a little alcohol to kill the germs. Um, 2 Timothy 4 verse 20, Paul left his friend ill. He left him sick on this the place called Miletus in the south of, uh, southwest of Turkey. South, southwestern part of Turkey. So yes, God allows Christians to become sick and sometimes even die. And where that is the case, we must remember, it's not always for some personal sin that God is punishing you. John 9 verse 1 to 3, a man was born blind and the disciples say it's his sin or his parents. And Jesus says it's no one's sin. God wants to show his great works and glorify his name through this man. Or when Lazarus got ill and died, Jesus said it's for the glory of God, this illness. Or Romans 8, God works all things together for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. He says we know that. And what's the point? He's making us like Christ and nothing will separate us from his love, not even illness. God will give you extra grace to bear this and he will form your character and shape your character, James 1. So that's one lesson. Second lesson, God can heal any disease and easily. He can do it. It's like nothing to him to, for him to do this. There was never a case that Jesus couldn't heal. We see in this passage, he healed everyone. And whatever your sickness, whatever other crisis you may have, it's like nothing. Jesus can cure this. Jesus can fix this. And you might say, but why doesn't he do this? I've been praying for so long about this. I've said, Lord, by your wounds I have been healed. We have been healed. That's what your word says in Matthew 8 verse 17. And, and Lord, you say in Psalm 103 verse 3, he heals all our diseases. So why don't you heal me? Is the Lord maybe, perhaps he's punishing me for something. Well, let me just answer that question. Psalm 103, verse 3, David says he heals all my diseases. David is not saying he heals every believer's every disease. David is saying, talking about himself and saying, I'm so thankful God healed all my diseases. And besides, even, even your diseases that don't get healed or maybe you die of them, in a sense it doesn't matter because as a believer... Every illness in the end, and even the worst illness, will lead you to Jesus. So when you die, you go to Jesus, and you have no more pain. Like Lazarus in, in Luke chapter 16. Or like Jesus said in John 11. Though you die, yet you will live. And then concerning the death of Jesus and, and sickness, because you say, but by his wounds I have been healed. Why am I not healed? Jesus doesn't immediately take away all your sin when you become a Christian. You're still going to sin in this life. And in the same way, Jesus doesn't immediately take away all your illness. Only when you're in heaven. And then when the new earth comes, when Jesus returns, there will be no more sickness, no more sin, and no more death.
So that's what Matthew 8 verse 17 means. When it says, by his wounds we have been healed. Yes, you're going to get a new body, a glorified body, body without sickness. But that's not yet. Only when Christ returns. And then the third lesson. Jesus didn't speak one word and then just stood and said, I heal you all and all are healed. No, verse 40 says he stopped at each one, every single one, and he laid hands on them and he healed them. Now Jesus, if he had wanted to, he could simply just speak a word and healed everyone. He did it in other instances where he just spoke a word. In Matthew 8, and a man was lying in his house, Jesus wasn't even there and the man was healed. But no, Jesus touches them. He puts his hands on them. It's like to say, I care about you. I'm interested in you. I love you. And now in, in our lives, Jesus is still ministering to us. He ministers to us through his word or through other Christians who serve one another or when we pray for one another or when the leaders come, James 5, and they lay their hands on the sick and they pray for them. And in all these things, Jesus is with you. He's involved in your life. He is with you personally. He is present through his spirit, by his spirit. So to Jesus, it is very easy to just speak a single word and bring you from the deepest depths of darkness where you are. Whatever your crisis, whatever your trouble, it can be the biggest crisis of your life. Jesus can speak a single word and help you through it and carry you through it and even, del even deliver you from it. And then you'll be like Martin Lloyd-Jones in 1949. Martin Lloyd-Jones was in a very deep depression and these intense attacks of the evil one of Satan. And it kept on, it went on for months and nothing helped, nothing. He tried everything, nothing helped to make him feel better. Until one morning at six o'clock he woke up and he was aware of a very evil presence in the room. And he was anxious to death, he was very anxious. And as he was getting dressed, he saw a single word in a sermon that was lying on the bed. A sermon by A.W. Pink. And it was just this one word. Glory. And, and then this happened. Instantly, like a blaze of light, Martin Lloyd-Jones felt the very glory of God surround him. Every doubt and fear was silenced. The love of God was shed abroad in his heart. The nearness of heaven and his own title to heaven became overwhelming certainties. And at once, he was brought into a state of ecstasy and joy, which remained with him for several days. Oh, may the Lord return swiftly and quickly, so that we will not only hear words of life and power, but we will see the one who spoke those words. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word this morning. Oh, would you speak also just a word to our hearts. You know the need of every individual here. Lay your hand upon them, Lord. Speak words of comfort, words of rebuke, words of encouragement, words of instruction, words of hope. Words of life, words of salvation, you know our needs. We ask for your grace in Jesus' name.